You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars. Doing a little bonus episode. We're going to try to do maybe a couple bonus episodes for everyone in December. We'll see. It's a busy month for everybody, but we want to try to do a little extra content because we know lockdown seems to be in effect again. Maybe people need some extra shows. Also the holiday seasons. It's nice to give people... Diversion. Yes. Distraction. Exactly. And a little something extra for everybody. We'll be doing a patron show, of course, as well for our patrons this month. So that's coming later in the month. If you need to contact us, strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. At this point, we're pretty backed up for interviews, but I am still taking anything with Bigfoot, especially anything with Bigfoot weirdness, high strangeness, along with Bigfoot. So if you have those stories, please contact us. I try not to do interviews all week long, but for Bigfoot, I will.
I just feel that strongly about Bigfoot. That a Wednesday night is even possible. Eh, Wednesday, maybe not. <laughs> Thursday show day, but uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll squeeze Bigfoot interviews in. Of course, we want to hear everybody's stories about everything, but like I said, we're just getting a little backed up on interviews right now, so scheduling's getting a little rough. Wait, you don't know what you're doing in June 2024? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that far out yet, <laughs> thankfully. What this episode is, I guess it's not entirely new. For longtime listeners, you might remember before we were doing weekly shows, on the off weeks, I would do something called Strange Familiars Presents, where I would just find an interesting old story from a newspaper, usually something about a ghost or a witch or something that caught my fancy. And I would just read the article from the old newspaper, maybe do a little bit of commentary or something. When we moved to Red Circle, our new podcast host, who are wonderful, by the way, absolutely love Red Circle, there was problems moving things over from our old podcast host who shall remain nameless. I don't think I ever moved the Strange Familiars Presents episodes over. They might be on YouTube, but I don't think they're, you know, as far as part of the main podcast feed, I don't think they're up there anymore. If they are, this will collect them all in one place. So it's not an entirely new episode, but it's stories that we covered a long time ago and maybe stories you haven't heard in a while if you heard them to begin with. And maybe if you're newer to the podcast, maybe you haven't heard them at all. Because they were individual episodes, when I introduce them, I often say, like, tonight I'm going to talk about, or on this episode mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about. But that's, you know, that's because they were individual episodes before. Here they're collected as one. Before we get to those stories, I want to mention, of course, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. If you're having issues with your puppy, like potty training, fear and nervousness, barking, if your puppy is chewing on furniture, shoes, or other things they shouldn't be chewing on, crate training, hyperactivity issues, leash training, mouthing and biting, and more. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They'll teach you what to do, but perhaps more importantly, they'll teach you what not to do. Maybe you know somebody who's getting a holiday puppy this season. If so, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy would be a perfect gift to go along with the holiday puppy. With their relationship-based approach to training, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. That's 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy, sithappens.us. Again, look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. So let's get into these stories. Uh, Some of these have some bearing on some upcoming things we're doing, especially the first story about the witch cloud. That ties in very closely to a project that Chad and I have been working on long term. We'll see what form that takes. So that's pertinent to some upcoming things. And then just some pretty neat stories I dug out of the newspaper. We'll just go ahead and play them all right in a row. October 16, 1755, a raiding party of Delaware Indians descended upon a settlement near Penn's Creek, close to New Berlin, Pennsylvania. They killed all but one of the 25 settlers, leaving scalp corpses and burn houses behind them. But bodies and ruins weren't the only thing the raiders left in their wake. 
It is said that a witch cloud lingers over this place. Near Penn's Creek and Switzer Run, a spectral fog can be seen which hides evil things in its mist. Switzer Run isn't home to the only witch cloud. It seems there were quite a few of these around Pennsylvania, most often settling about areas where great tragedies had taken place. Where the witch cloud drifts, terrible things follow. It was said that anything could come out of the fog. Ghosts, werewolves, even Bruchlach, a very old Pennsylvania German term for a vampire. Other reports have spirits of the dead, each holding a candle borne upon the witch cloud, as if they were riding strange horses from beyond. The thing seen coming out of the Switzer Run witch cloud, more often than any of these other horrors, was a ghostly bull elk. It is said that the witch cloud would descend, obscuring Switzer Run, and from the mist-obscured waters a monster bull elk would suddenly emerge. Its large pointed antlers and flaming red eyes stunned even the bravest hunters, and many rifles were left unfired on the muddy ground, only to be retrieved after the witch cloud passed. The few hunters whose trembling fingers ever managed to pull the trigger on the ghost elk claim that their bullets were turned from the creature, as if by some kind of magnetic force. Many of the old-timers stated that a silver bullet could bring down the ghost elk, but it is not known if such a bullet was ever cast, much less fired into the witch cloud elk. Another witch cloud of sorts seemed to hang over a stretch of road in Heidelberg Township, near Hanover, Pennsylvania. On the road between Hanover and York, west of Spring Grove, near the old Mennonite Road, there was reported a series of strange sightings in the 1870s. The phantoms took diverse forms, sometimes appearing as large black dogs, those hounds so often encountered in places of strangeness and other times as humanoid ghosts. The most frightening specters were in the form of flaming ghosts. Fiery men, and perhaps even more disturbing, flaming children seen in the haunted spot. The York Daily reported in 1875, Many of the timid absolutely refused to pass along the haunted spot after nightfall, and even the boldest hearts quake and tremble with fear when obliged to pass the vicinity where the spooks do nightly congregate and hold their phantom revels. Traveling eastward to York City, we are met with a tale of some very strange happenings. A series of articles report on a shape-changing something that became known as the Clark Alley Imp. From the York Daily, 1880. 
another spook. Hanover, Columbia, and the Ninth Ward of York have been blessed with ghosts and ghost stories for some time, but now it appears a new candidate has sprung up in the spirit world to divide the honors of spookship. The haunts of this nocturnal visitor are reported to be in West Clark Alley, between Beaver and George Streets, and its antics are variously described. Thus far, it has only been seen by two young men, who are also on their nocturnal tramp. The time, generally, is Sunday nights, when dryness seems to afflict some persons and drives them forth in the darkness to seek a drop. His ghost ship makes his appearance in the alley and makes himself visible to these thirsty wanderers. Just the exact shape that the apparition assumes on the occasions referred to has not transpired. Sometimes he comes in the form of a man and puts on the airs of a horse thief. Then again he struts along in the shape of a huge demijohn on two legs, and not unfrequently, like a rolling beer barrel, tapped at both ends. The horse thief shape is never interfered with, but the other two forms are chased up and down the alley, but like the will of the wisp, are never captured. So firm are the young men in the belief that something is wrong in the locality named, that they secured the services of a police officer and stationed him at the corner while they scoured the alley. After remaining on the special watch for the spook or horse thief for an hour or more, the officer abandoned his position and reported all quiet along the line. It is to be hoped that these enterprising young men will persevere in their laudable efforts to bag this what is it and give the public a full account of the whole affair. A demijohn is a large, narrow neck bottle which, depending on the size, holds about 3 to 10 gallons of liquid. When the articles speak of a walking demijohn, one wonders what they were seeing. A few days later, the York Daily continues the story. The Spooks Again That something, or something else, still appears to haunt West Clark Alley, and every night, parties appear to be on the lookout for his ghost ship. Young and old men, if they happen to return home late at night and are asked, Where have you been? invariably answer, Hunting the spook. To those who love late hours, this Clark Alley mystery becomes very convenient, as they can easily satisfy the credulous innocents at home by relating what they have seen or heard in the haunted district. But while some use the reports to excuse their own shortcomings, not a few are actually earnestly watching for the spook. Whether the rolling double-tap beer barrel and the walking demijohn are drawing some to the fated vicinity has not transpired, and as the old saying goes, that's the conundrum. The very latest developments appear to have intensified the excitement. One report is that a boy was seen passing through the portion of the alley peddling newspapers, and when approached by the parties, the little imp suddenly vanished in a cloud of smoke. A piece of paper was afterward picked up at the very spot of the strange occurrence, which upon examination was found to be printed in foreign and unmeaning characters. The scrap emitted a strong sulfurous smell. The Ninth Ward spook is also being looked after. Recently, a regularly organized party went on a still hunt for him 
and met with unexpected success. They plainly saw the shadowy apparition standing before them. It was shapeless in form and undescribable in appearance. One of the party drew his revolver, took deliberate aim at the something, and fired. The deadly leaden messenger sped its way, and when the smoke from the powder had cleared away, the apparition was gone, and the only object remaining in sight was a post, and upon examination the bullet was found embedded therein. This volunteer party are determined to follow up their investigation, and woe to the spook that will come within range of their trusted weapons. So let the hobgoblin fraternity look out. Since the above has been written, it has been learned that there was another ghostly visitation in the Ninth Ward. Yesterday morning, about five o'clock, as a married lady was sweeping the pavement in front of her residence on West King Street near Brown and Smyzer's Coal Yard, she noticed a tall woman dressed in black walking down the opposite side with a solemn tread. While watching the strange moving figure with fear and trembling, the lady was horrified to see the something stalking across the street toward her. Before the woman in black reached her, however, she rushed into the side alley and slammed the gate shut, and then called for help. A figure answering the same description was seen in a yard in the same neighborhood. Someone suggested that the tall woman in black might have been a policeman dressed in his long black waterproof, but this is indignantly denied, and the only solution of the mystery that the good lady will receive is that it is a real spook, if such things can be real. Pennsylvania is fraught with tales of witchcraft. From the earliest settlers up through today, the belief in witchcraft, or Hexerai as it was known to the Pennsylvania Germans, has persisted. Not just in the remote regions, but right into our towns and cities. In the early 1900s in the city of York, Pennsylvania, there were still storefront powwow doctors, spiritual healers who would help people deal with anything from warts and rheumatism to removing curses placed on them by witches. The most famous tale of witchcraft in Pennsylvania is probably that of Nelson Raymeyer and the so-called Hex Murder, which we covered extensively in episode 1 of Strange Familiars, but witchcraft has made the news often in Pennsylvania. Our first story dates from the early 1880s. The Story of a Bewitched Girl For the last three years, Stony Creek Valley has been excited on the subject of witchcraft, the alleged witch being an old or middle-aged woman living in that classic region named Boyer, who was charged with having bewitched a girl named Kildee. Mrs. Boyer is a reputable German woman, her husband being a hard-working man engaged on the railroad. Mr. Kildee, the father of the girl, is a decent, orderly man, rather intelligent, but who fully believed his daughter had been bewitched by Mrs. Boyer. He's not alone in his faith. Hundreds of other people also believe it the faith of Mrs. Boyer's witchcraft rendering her an object of aversion. A chip peddler named McLean is the reputed witch doctor who lives in Fishing Creek Valley. The Boyers were at last compelled to prosecute McLean for having induced Kildee to believe that their daughter is really bewitched. The hearing of the case took place at Squire McAllister's, Fort Hunter, on Wednesday, the road in front of the office being crowded with people and the office filled with excited believers in witchcraft. William Kildee, the father of the bewitched girl, known as an old river pilot called Squire, 
told the following story under oath. He said that three years ago my daughter took sick and I tried all the physicians in the neighborhood without getting any relief. He heard of a man in Harrisburg named Wolf who told him his daughter was bewitched. Miss Kildee's half-sister made a visit to Harrisburg to see Dr. Molson and she said that he had shown her the face of the witch in water who had possession of her sister and the face of the witch was Mrs. Boyer, stepmother of John Boyer, the prosecutor. Mr. Kildee then heard of Armstrong McLean, a Fishing Creek chip peddler, and he, Kildee, got Samuel Bell in the same valley to go with him to McLean's, who said my daughter was punished by the evil one. He said they could go home and he would lay the evil one, by which the girl would be relieved at the setting of the sun, and he would come over in the morning and give her some medicine. When Bell and Kildee got home, it was found that at the setting of the sun, the girl was relieved. McLean got to Kildee's the next morning and administered the medicine. After three visits, Kildee said she got well and continued well until this spring a year ago, 1879. McLean got for his services five dollars. Again in 1879, the girl had another attack from the evil one. McLean was sent for and said when he examined the patient that she had the same trouble. To this, Kildee replied, John B. Black of Harrisburg, a school teacher in Stony Creek Valley, in the year 1879 had given her over to the wife of John Boyer, who was a stepson of a Mrs. Boyer, to kill her by witchcraft. McLean again gave her medicine which took the spell off and a second fee was paid. In January of this year, the girl again took the spells, when Mrs. Kildee went to McLean and got the medicine to help her. McLean then came over and said she had the same thing back, administering another dose of medicine, with the remark that if that did not do any good, he could not help her. Kildee believes she got this last attack in January, while on the road to a wedding, during which they had to pass Mrs. Boyer's house. Mrs. Boyer, discovering the party in the road, began to abuse them in Dutch, declaring that she would make them go for McLean again. That night, Mrs. Kildee took it again, and sure enough, McLean was called again. In the course of his testimony before the squire, Kildee said, My daughter says that Mrs. Boyer came to her bed last night and said she had her now and she would keep her. Squire McAllister appealed to the good sense of Mr. Kildee, asking whether he could be deluded by such stuff, when Kildee replied with solemn conviction, Squire, I firmly believe that Mrs. Boyer is a witch, that she bewitched my daughter, and I have spent nearly all my means in the past three years to have her cured. Kildee also said that a young man who wanted to come home with his daughter from Sunday school and was refused handed her over to Mrs. Boyer to be tortured. McLean admitted the visit and his practices and Squire McAllister put him under $500 bail to answer at court. Here's another from the 1880s. A Family Bewitched A remarkable story told by a farmer in Somerset County. Jesse Miller, a farmer living in Greenville Township, Somerset County, is ready to swear that his household is afflicted with a witch. Some time ago, he found a saddle hanging on a hook by the chimney. He had placed it on the banisters. This occurred three times, and every member of the family accused solemnly declared that they had not touched the saddle. Miller took it to the woodshed, and again it was displaced. He then removed the saddle to a sawmill and spiked it to a standard. It stays there. His wife was washing one day and stepped out of the apartment for a few minutes. Returning, she was amazed to find the articles, which she had left in the tub, 
thrown about over the floor. Miller was aroused one night by terrible screams in his front yard. He bounded out of bed and rushed out and found his daughter there alone. She had no knowledge of how she got there. Every window and door in the house was locked and bolted as when the young lady went to bed. Twice since, she has been spirited out of the house in broad daylight, in presence of her mother and others. The spirit of darkness that exerts this influence over the young lady is invisible to all others. She describes the witch as resembling an old woman, with hoary locks, hairy face, and wearing a white cap. The Miller family is thoroughly terrified, as is also the entire community. Miller intends to leave the locality as soon as possible. Meanwhile, he has been in Myersdale in quest of a witch doctor to make the place tolerable for a short time yet at least. He is firm in his witch belief. Our next tale comes from the 1890s. A young Albertus woman who believes herself to be in the toils of an evil spirit. The days of witchcraft, or believers in witchcraft, which is the same thing, are not yet past, and to listen to a story of the doings of those uncanny creatures called witches is enough to make the hair of the most incredulous stand on end and throw out sparks of fire. The latest in this line comes from Albertus, where a pretty young lady, of irreproachable character, is suffering from what she firmly believes to be for Hexrai. She alleges that whenever she ventures to go outdoors after dark, something resembling a large black cat follows her, and by reason of which she is always greatly terrorized. She is frequently taking her young brother along to see whether he could observe the same horrid object following her, and he too avers that on all such occasions the strange apparition followed close to their footsteps, and that in each instance they together fled terror-stricken to their home. The lady began to be haunted by this strange object months ago, and the influences the strange occurrences have brought to bear upon her soon began to rob her of sleep and rest. She at the same time lost her appetite and began to lose flesh, all of which terrible experiences were greatly aggravated one morning recently when she discovered that during the night some of her dresses had been torn into shreds. They had been hanging on hooks in her bedroom and were all right when she retired the evening before. How or in what manner they were torn cannot be explained except that the hex did it. In order to save her other dresses, she removed them to the home of her intended, where they are now stored for safekeeping. The young lady is sure that the witch resides in the near neighborhood, and she has now about decided that if she is not soon able to throw off the evil influence, she will be obliged to go away from home. The neighborhood is much excited over the matter, and for the present, the Hexerai story is the sole talk in that section. A month later, another article updates the situation and provides more details. Still troubled by malignant spirits, the Albertus Hex continues to exercise her evil influences. The Albertus Hex evidently continues her business at the old stand, though in a somewhat subdued manner. The young lady, who for many weeks suffered so severely from the evil influences brought to bear upon her by an alleged witch living in the neighborhood, and who finally to break the spell under which she was held left her home and took up her residence with the family of her intended for nine days, returned home after the time was up. But the black cat came back and is still about, and always at her heels, whenever she goes out of the house after dark. She knows that there are many unbelievers of the art of witchcraft, 
and only hopes that they may never know what it is to be similarly tormented. The cat that now appears in her tracks is a fence high and provided with a tail as long as a fence rail, but seemingly headless, a most hideous object. It follows in her steps wherever she goes after night and usually parades about the premises until after midnight when it disappears as mysteriously as it comes. Most of the parents living in the neighborhood of the supposed witch, or hex as the Germans have it, are fearful of the influences of the suspected woman, and as a consequence restrain their children from going out of doors except under close guardianship. If a little innocent gets unwell, as is sometimes the case, and acts a little queer, as children will sometimes do, the parents are at once seized with the fear that the hex has brought it under her evil influence. So strong is the belief in this hexerai business that the alleged witch is regarded with terror by everybody in the community, and as a consequence of which horseshoes have grown in great demand for nailing over the doors of entrances to dwellings, it being a popular belief that they have the power to cast off all danger to person and property. So greatly has the community become seized with terror that some are actually afraid to venture out of doors after nightfall. Our last story takes us into the 20th century and finds a family bewitched in Lebanon County. Richland family seeks aid of law to drive out spirits. Hexerai blamed for frantic actions of mother, daughter, and granddaughter. Neighbors pronounce it a sad case and are anxious for peace and quiet in neighborhood. Hexerai has made its appearance in Lebanon County again, following a restful absence for some years. District Attorney Ray G. Light has been asked for legal and police assistance to drive it out. Residents of Richland this afternoon appeared at the District Attorney's office and declared that they have been kept from sleep for more than ten days by the unearthly yells and wailing of three women, a grandmother, her daughter, and the latter's daughter, who declare they are bewitched. The youngest of the trio has been ill for a long time, suffering from some nervous disorder which neighbors say started physically and then apparently developed mental complications. Her mother is reported to be separated from her husband, who lives in Berks County, and his absence is believed to have undermined her mental balance, judging by her actions. She is said to rave and indulge in hysterical actions which keep neighbors awake for hours at a time at night. Neighbors say she asserts that she has been bewitched, but that the perpetrator of the supposed witchcraft is unknown. At night she fancies someone is after her, and she shrieks and wails and frights in terrible mental agony. It is reported that her incantations to frighten off the witches, and her wails and mental disturbances generally, are the cause of her daughter's disability. The oldest woman apparently keeps house, but shows signs of being affected by her present environment. Neighbors did their utmost to help and went so far as to procure a nurse for the girl. But the nurse is said to have been driven out of the house the third day she was there, and since then the disturbance at the house is represented as being worse than ever. It is admittedly a sad case, and neighbors and other townspeople are willing to help, but they say they have not been permitted a full night's rest in ten days, and now the authorities have been asked to show legal ways and means of caring for the family and giving the neighborhood the peace and quiet to which the citizens are entitled. This episode we present two tales of gypsy queens from the turn of the last century. 
The first is of note because it takes place on Chickie's Rock along the Susquehanna River in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Chickie's Rock is known as one of the most haunted places in the state with tales of ghosts, giant mummies, UFOs, and more all associated with the area. Chickie's Rock is also known as the home of those diminutive ape men, Pennsylvania's little Bigfoot, the Albatwitch. Lancaster, September 1st. On Chickie's Rock, a beautiful spot overlooking the Susquehanna River near Marietta, a band of 400 gypsies has been encamped for the past six weeks, and yesterday a crowd of 1,000 spectators saw them crown a queen of the tribe. For the past 25 years, Queen Mary Buckland has ruled the gypsies to their entire satisfaction. It is a tribe's prerogative to dethrone a queen who may have incurred their displeasure, but Queen Mary today resigned voluntarily and her beautiful daughter, Devora assumed the crown. The day marked a double celebration, it being the latter's 25th birthday anniversary, and in honor of the event, the gypsies were attired in their most gaudy costumes. In a grove, a rustic throne was erected, it was covered with dazzling bunting and decorated with wild flowers and flags, in the center of which was a similarly adorned chair with a rug and footstool. Devorah was led from her tent to the throne on the arm of William Brown, a young member of the tribe who was attired in a bright red suit. The queen-to-be was tastefully dressed in black silk. The other members of the tribe grouped themselves about the throne, and Brown addressed the audience, announcing that the new queen had been duly elected by a majority vote of the tribe. Then Mrs. Anna Smith, upon whom the honor had previously been conferred, placed the crown of black jetting and silk, and containing an inscription in the gypsy language, upon Devorah's head. Each member of the tribe stepped forward and pledged the queen their devotion and support. This was followed by a gypsy musical. Devorah, like her mother, was born in Belmont Castle in northern Egypt. At an early age, she moved to England where she was reared. Edward Smith, her grandfather, who was 87 years old, prides himself that his family has not slept one night sheltered by a house for seven generations. Our next article comes from California and tells of a gypsy queen's ferocious and protective pet. A marshal wounded by a gypsy's fierce pet at Covello. Attempt to arrest a Romani wanderer causes trouble. Covello, June 16th. The police and town marshal and their deputies in this community are proverbially brave, but the mettle of the three of them was sorely tried today by a struggle with a ferocious baboon. It was while attempting to arrest an itinerant gypsy queen at the parade grounds that Marshal Keating was attacked by a muscular simian belonging to the Romany potentate. The animal loyally came to the aid of his mistress and gave valiant battle to the officers in the presence of a large crowd of cowboys, who loosened its hold on Keating only when the tightening grasp of four lassos shut off its wind. The creature was, however, subdued but momentarily, and after being thrust into a wagon, he renewed hostilities and proceeded to clean out the whole squad of officers that followed him during the melee. The huge gorilla was laid low with a club and bound with straps. The queen and her daughter were then taken aboard and the journey to the calaboose began. On the way, the gorilla freed his arms and made a vicious lunge at the driver, Walter Osborne. The gypsy woman, with her little daughter and her gorilla, has for several days been traveling through this section and many complaints had reached the officers concerning them. The woman rattled a tambourine while the gorilla danced. 
The child begged, and the trio found it very profitable. Keening asked the woman to show her county license. She was unable to comply, and the officer attempted to arrest her. Her resistance caused the gorilla to show fight. Keating was badly bitten, and blood poisoning is feared. So this time, I bring a story about skeletons and ghosts from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Some of the poltergeist-like activity and the old man remind me of Jane's account from the Chicago Demon episode. But there are some very interesting additions to this story. The dreams about the treasure being buried under the steps is fascinating. I think the treasure may have been the skeleton in question, not gold. I also really like the image of the old man gliding across the floor with the lantern. The story appeared in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Courier, 1915. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here's a story of skeletons and ghosts. William Kennedy dreamed of fortune and then dug up human bones. White spook walks. Old man tramps about house making noises. The skeleton unearthed in an Allison Hill cellar is not the only skeleton found recently in Harrisburg. For yesterday it was learned that the remains of another were found under the cellar wall of a house at 120 Paxton Street, occupied by Mrs. Mary E. Kennedy. Whether the bones are those of a human being has not been ascertained, and it is understood that a further investigation will be made this week. The queer part of the find is that a dream led to the discovery. If the bones are those of a human being, then it must be the ghost of that being which is causing the occupants of the house much concern, for they say that ever since they moved there, four years ago, they have heard strange noises and seen the figure of a man walking about the house carrying a lantern. The figure, according to those at the house, does not walk on the floor, but travels along in mid-air. Yes, indeed, they say, it's an honest-to-goodness fact. A Strange Dream Some time ago, William Kennedy, who lives at the house, had a strange dream. In it, he was told that in the cellar of the house, a treasure was hidden, and upon arising in the morning, he went to the spot indicated in his vision and began to dig. 
The spot was under the cellar steps and directly beneath the cellar wall. He had only been at work a short time when he dug out a bone, and then another, and then several more. As they began to show themselves as part of a human framework, Kennedy decided to quit digging and now refuses to go into the cellar after dark without a lantern. Few people knew of the find, and so the neighborhood learned little of the bones. It was not until yesterday that members of the household told the story of the discovery and the many incidents they have experienced during the occupancy of the house. Other Queer Stories Mrs. Bertha Lesser, a daughter of Mrs. Kennedy, told the story of the mystery. She stated to a reporter that her brother was not the only person to have queer dreams about the house, which is believed to have stood for a century or more. Mrs. Lesser said that some time ago a sister who lives in Canada, who had never been in the house, wrote to her and told her of a dream in which was pictured the hall on the second floor and three steps which lead into one of the rooms. The description furnished in the dream tallied exactly with the place. The sister in Canada said that she could see a fortune buried under one of the steps. Boards were then taken up by the Kennedys, but no fortune was found. It is shortly before this occurrence that William Kennedy had his dream, and although he has dug in several parts of the cellar, he has not been able to find the gold. He is willing to allow some other person to continue digging out the bones. Mrs. Lesser says that often the members of the household have heard strange tappings on the window panes, but when they investigate, they find nothing. About three weeks ago, one of the women was in an upstairs room doing some work. In an adjoining room, there is a stove, and Mrs. Lesser said that the noise of raking was plainly heard, but no person could be seen near the stove. On another occasion, Mrs. Lesser stated that members of the family were dressing and preparing to go out for the evening. Raindrops were heard on the roof, and umbrellas were gotten out. When the occupants reached the street, the stars were shining brightly, and there was not evidence of any rain having fallen. Here's a real ghost. Probably the queerest of the many stories told at the house is one about an old man who has been frequently seen. Some time ago, Mrs. Lesser and her sister slept together in the same bed, and late at night, Mrs. Lesser said she was positive that she saw the old man walking through the room about a foot above the floor and carrying a lantern on his arm. The next morning, she went downstairs and did not intend to make any mention of the incident until her sister asked who the old man was who walked through the room with the lantern. Then Mrs. Lesser knew that both had seen the same thing, and that it was not purely imagination. The doors and windows were found intact, and inasmuch as no old man lives at the house, they came to the conclusion that it was the ghost of a former occupant who died. On other occasions, the same old character has been seen. A few weeks ago, Mrs. Kennedy heard a noise in one of the rooms which sounded like some person closing a trunk. She gazed into the room and there she saw the old figure. Many times, Mrs. Lesser says, while members of the family have been sitting in the front room of the house with the lights extinguished, they have seen the old personage pass through, go upstairs, return, and then vanish. Others heard noises. Mrs. Lesser stated that according to information obtainable concerning former residents, they also heard strange noises and heard many peculiar sounds. As for the bones unearthed, more of them will have to be recovered before it can be stated positively whether a human being was buried beneath the wall. A mysterious part of the find is that a small sledgehammer, the handle of which appeared to have been saturated with blood at one time, was dug out with the bones. The old house in which the Kennedys reside is said to have at one time been a tavern, and many stories have been told about it. 
One is that an old peddler coming to the city was seen to enter there, but was never seen to leave. The supposition being that he was murdered within the building, and his body hidden. The bones recovered may be those of the old peddler. The article I'm reading in this episode I found when I was looking for historical Bigfoot reports, as I want to do. It turned out it was not a Bigfoot, but at first it really starts sounding like it is with the face at the window and the, the knocking on the door and the hairy arm reaching through, but it turns out to be something else. Still a very interesting story, though. This is from the Pittsburgh Press, 1921. That face at the window, a visage human yet inhuman, little deep-set eyes shining with phosphorescence, long hairy arms and clutching talons of hands. Young Mrs. Frederick Grossman was sound asleep in her bed, beside her lay her husband. The bedroom was at the front of their pleasant little Detroit flat, and the bottom of the bed itself was close to the wall. Beside it was a window opening into the street four stories below. An hour before, Mrs. Grossman had pushed the window up six inches from the bottom to admit air. This was her nightly duty after putting out the lights because she slept on the outer side, close to that window. After she had raised it, she had stood there for a little time looking at the tall tree close to the house. Its naked branches were beginning to show promise of buds. She had thought how pretty the tree would be when springs touched had clothed it with leaves. Then she had tiptoed over and crept under the covers, quietly, so as not to waken her husband, who was already asleep. And soon she was asleep too. Then she began to dream. It seemed to her that she saw the room just as it was when she had gone to bed, with the faint light from the street glimmering through the window, but the window sash was rising slowly and silently. With the helplessness of nightmare, she watched it slide up slowly, inch by inch. Then out of the semi-darkness beyond, she saw appear a great ugly hand, hairy and knotted. It was followed by a long, sinewy, hairy arm. The hand reached cautiously up and raised the drawn blind. Mrs. Grossman struggled against the deepening of the nightmare terror. Now the sash had reached the top. She saw, apparently floating in the air behind where it had been, a pair of huge staring eyes, in the depth of which phosphorescences burned as they do in those of a dog. At first, all she could make out was the eyes. Then gradually a face became visible. It was human and yet not human, larger than a man's and evil, cunning and brutal. Another hairy hand grasped the sill and a leering face drew closer and closer to her. Its mouth twitched and she smelled the fumes of liquor. With a tremendous effort, Mrs. Grossman broke the spell that held her and sat bolt upright, but the thing that she had beheld and what she had thought her nightmare did not disappear, as such dread visions do when the sleeper awakens. It was still there. And its hideous face was not far from her, and a dark body crouched upon the window sill, with the long arms stretching out to her, and the talons bent to seize her. The nightmare had merged into reality, and such a reality. Mrs. Grossman fell back fainting, as her body dropped the right arm struck her husband across the face. He awakened, his eyes caught at once the shape of the thing, now almost in the room. 
He saw the face of the malignant shining eyes peering at him over the body of his wife. Grossman jerked his pistol from beneath his pillow and fired straight at it. There came an inhuman shriek, but when an instant later his eyes had cleared from the flash of the pistol, the thing was gone. Grossman jumped to the floor. One quick glance showed him blood splattered upon the bed. He saw that the window was raised to the top, and as he leaned out, his hand rested upon another red-warm splotch. He scanned the tree. There was nothing in it. He looked down at the street. It was deserted. Grossman turned up the lights, telephoned to the police, and strove to restore Mrs. Grossman to consciousness. As he worked, he heard far below a loud knocking as of fists upon the door, then a scream, then silence. The basement apartment of the house in which the Grossmans live is occupied by Joseph Swift, his wife and two children. All had been sound asleep for several hours. Suddenly, Mrs. Swift shook her husband by the shoulder. Listen, she said, there's somebody knocking. Swift raised up. He heard a soft, timid rapping at the door which led into the hallway. This rapping changed quickly into rapid, loud, insistent beating. Something's the matter. Somebody wants to wake us up. Maybe the place is on fire, gasped Mrs. Swift. The two children, awakened, ran in from their room and clung to the skirts of their mother's nightgown. Who's there, cried Swift. There was no answer. The knocking ceased. Cautiously, he turned the knob and opened the door about eight inches, peering through the crack into the lighted corridor beyond. There's nobody out there, he turned, mystified, to his wife. The words were hardly out of his mouth when the knob was rent from his hand as though by the grasp of a giant. The door flew open and as quickly was slammed shut, but in the brief instant of its opening, Swift saw silhouetted in it a hideous figure, long-armed, shaggy, standing half erect. Involuntarily, he closed his eyes to shut out the apparition. He felt a foot, strangely clinging and repulsive, tread upon his own bare instep. He heard his wife shriek. Swift turned to leap to her aid. He had a glimpse of his two children rolling over the floor and under the sofa. His wife, mouth open in terror, was leaning against the table, glaring at the thing that had entered. He caught another glimpse of the distorted face, fierce glowing eyes, and of a semi-human shape, whose long arms were raised menacingly against him. Then the thing whisked across the room and into the darkened kitchen. Swift leaped to the kitchen door, closed it, and locked it. He then dragged chairs over as a barricade and turned his attention to his wife. She was moaning and crying, utterly unnerved by the shock. The two children crept fearfully from under the sofa. "'Was it the bad man, Pop?' wailed one. "'I don't know what it was, son,' answered Swift grimly. "'But whatever it was, don't be afraid. I won't let it hurt you. He was rummaging about for his revolver when five policemen who had answered the call from the Grossman apartment came marching through the door. By the aid of flashlights from the Grossman window, they had seen spots of blood upon a branch of the tree near the window. They had followed these spots from the bottom of the tree trunk along a cement walk that led to the basement entrance to the apartment house. It dodged into the kitchen, said Swift. The police took away the barricade and cautiously opened the door. From inside came a moaning and frightened chattering. Revolvers ready, one officer flashed his light around the little room. He shut the door with a bang. It ain't a man, he shouted. Get a big crate. 
A heavy crate was found and pushed against the door. One of the policemen climbed on top of it and stood in front of it. The others, clustered behind, saw a dark figure rise upon its feet and hands and shamble toward him. As the figure approached, the officer retreated, finally leaping upon the back of the crate and back into the living room. As he did so, the thing which followed him passed into the crate and sank down whimpering and nursing a bleeding breast. It was a great ape. The animal was weak from loss of blood and made no resistance when the crate was fastened and carried away to police headquarters. Astonishingly similar to Edgar Allan Poe's world-known gruesome story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue had been its exploits, lacking only the tragic end of that classic. Even while the police were searching for its owner, J.K. Seaman, manager of an oil concern, made report that a large ape belonging to him had escaped the night before. He came to the police station and identified the animal there as his own. Mr. Seaman told police that he had bought the monkey a few days previously from a man whose name he could not recall. The creature had attracted him by its unusual intelligence. It had been docile and exceptionally well-behaved, he said, until the previous night. Then it had been sitting at a table on which was a decanter filled with whiskey. While its master's back was turned, the ape had poured out from this decanter a glass full of liquor, and Seaman, as he turned, saw it drink it down. A window was opened behind it, and it had leaped through it, apparently to escape an expected punishment. He had called and searched for it in vain. Mr. Seaman's home is a good mile from the Grossman's apartment. The ape had made its way unseen through the streets between. It is probable that when Mrs. Grossman stood at the window looking out of that tree, that it was even then crouching on the opposite side of the street and was attracted by the weight of her robe. It might even have been in the tree at that time. Certainly something drew it up to that particular window. If the ape had succeeded in entering the Grossman apartment without having awakened the occupants, what would have been the result? Would Poe's story of the Rue Morgue have then found its parallel in fact and the bodies of husband and wife been discovered next morning, torn and mutilated, as were the women in that dark romance? What was its purpose in entering that flat? The Detroit police began to be aware of some very unusual elements in this matter. If the animal had spied young Mrs. Grossman when she opened the window, then it showed after that a cunning or a training more human than ape-like. It must have waited until it thought that she was asleep before it climbed up. Furthermore, the opening of the window had been silent and guarded. Again, the fact that it had sought shelter not in some alley or hole, but had knocked on the door of another apartment, seemed to the police to be highly significant. All this implied training, but training for what? Well, for instance, an ape by reason of its agility and habits could scale walls and other places that a man could not. It would make a perfect second-story burglar. With that thought in mind, detectives made an examination of windowsills, bureau drawers, and jewel cases in houses and apartments recently robbed. To their disappointment, they showed no prints that could be compared to the fingerprints of an ape. But under the bedroom window of one apartment that had been looted a few weeks ago, they found an opal ring, part of the jewelry which had vanished on the night the place was entered. 
It was thinly covered with earth, which only recently had been mud. Its position showed that it had been thrown from the window. Just where we would expect to find it if the animal's master, waiting below, had failed to get it, as with a shower of other articles, it had been thrown down by the monkey, said detectives. The police then decided to test their theory. They gave the animal a drink of liquor and placed it alone in a room containing a set of bedroom furniture. Watching through holes, they saw the ape go through the dressing stand. It wasted no time on the larger drawers, which usually are filled with wearing apparel, but opened quietly the smaller drawers at the top. Anything metallic caught its attention and fumbled with all the boxes and cases, but only when there was no spring catch did it succeed in opening them. Then, with a few small articles in each hand, it crept to the open window and tossed these out without even looking to see where they landed. After that, it slipped back and got more, repeating the action. After several trips, it was just about to slip out of the window itself when the detectives rushed in and overpowered it. The tests were made again and again. Only after the animal had been given a drink of liquor did it go through with the burglary. At other times, it was exceptionally timid. Whiskey made of it a real monkey, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was now plain to see that the beast had received a careful education in crime. It had been taught to like liquor and had been given drink both before going out to rob and, no doubt, after the robbery as a reward. Death was at first suggested by the police department, but finally because of his new master standing in the community, they allowed the monkey to be released in his custody. But it is stipulated that Mr. Seaman must guard against having the ape stolen, and most of all by the unidentified man from whom it was purchased. Also, he must never sell or give away the monkey without consent of the police department. And he must never allow it even to smell liquor. Tonight's tale is one of superstition and exhumation in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Superstition in Lancaster County A case of superstition in this county has come to our knowledge, which for ignorance and moral turpitude exceeds the darkest pages of the history of Robachism or even Salem witchcraft and is a disgrace to the boasted intelligence of the Garden of the Keystone State with her college, academics, common schools, and churches. On Sunday last, the good people of Ephrata were startled and shocked that the remains of a certain Miss Sophia Banman, who died about nine years ago, had been exhumed on that day by two men hired for the purpose by the friends of the deceased. Curiosity was naturally excited, and speculation started as to the cause of such an open desecration of the ashes of the dead on the quiet of the Sabbath. And upon inquiry of some of the relatives, our correspondent learned that the young lady alluded to had died of consumption, and that since her death, two of her sisters, her mother, and two brothers had died also of the same disease. In all these cases, a hereditary taint was strongly marked, and no doubt was left upon the minds of physicians and all sensible persons as to the cause of their death. But the opinions of physicians were set aside by the incursions of ignorance and superstition, under which the belief was seriously entertained and acted upon that, by some hocus-pocus, the winding-sheet of the corpse had got into her mouth, and that by a continual suction, the modus operandi of which was only known to the spirits, she had actually drawn the other five members of the family after her, and unless the winding-sheet was speedily removed from the mouth of the corpse, 
she would, in like manner, cause the premature death of the whole connection. Incredulous as the belief in such a monstrous superstition in the enlightened age may appear, it is nevertheless true. For according to previous arrangements, the hired resurrectionists commenced operations on Sunday morning. The earth was removed, the coffin brought to the surface, and the lid removed under the direction of a committee of inspection. But to their utter astonishment, no winding sheet was found there. The poor deluded creatures, having forgotten, in the zeal of their superstition, that the last shred of a piece of bleached muslin would rot away long before the expiration of nine years. With disappointment depicted in their countenance, the committee caused the remains to be quickly and quietly interred, and then sought their respective homes again, to meditate upon the doctrine of spooks and goblins and sucking corpses. The article was from the Valley Spirit, Wednesday, June 3rd, 1857. This story is from the Daily Republican, Monongahela, Pennsylvania, from 1916. After a witch cat, family lies in wait with a solid gold bullet. Hex has caused various kinds of woe in Tumbling Run Valley and can't be killed with ordinary ammunition. At Tumbling Run Valley, near Pottsville, Pennsylvania, a family is lying in wait for a witch cat with a gun loaded with a solid gold bullet, and has also put a witch cat eating cat on the trail of the hex or witch cat. This witch cat appeared at the home of Hal Thomas some weeks ago. It was always seen at four o'clock in the morning, prowling around the barnyard, and it is said to have grown until it was four feet long. It is averred that the hens began crowing like roosters, and the pigs barking like dogs, and this first evidence that something was wrong was followed by horses, cattle, poultry, and even people pining away and dying. The climax came when Hal Thomas himself died. Two daughters were left, one a spinster, the other married. The former charged the latter with having put the hex witch cat on the property, and at the funeral the two had a grievous clash, for the unmarried sister tried to expel from the house the married witch sender. The Thomases had been shooting at the hex, and though their aim ordinarily was good, they seemingly could not hit the strange cat. After her father's death, Miss Thomas held a conference with an unknown witch doctor and announced that it had been revealed that the reason the bullets had not been effective was because they were lead. She followed directions and molded a solid gold bullet out of a $5 gold piece. But when the magic bullet was in the gun, ready for use, the cat failed to reappear. Miss Thomas and the neighbors have lain in wait for the hex, but all in vain. Some declare its absence due to the fact that too many people have been wearing crucifixes and talismans to protect themselves. The affair became so mysterious that the Pottsville Republican editorially asked a complete investigation. The latest turn to the mysterious case, however, is the most interesting of all. A black cat owned by a Schuylkill Haven man has been found by the hex doctors to be a hexahemeron cat. This cat is said to have been born on the sixth day of the sixth month in 1906, 
and to have been one of the litter of six kittens. It was blind only six days after being born, whereas all ordinary cats are blind nine days. The word hexahemeron is taken from two Greek words, hex and hemera, and means a completion in six parts. It is usually used in referring to the six days labor of creation, as described in the first chapter of Genesis. While there are only five books in Moses in the authorized Bible, the Hex Doctors declare that they have a sixth book of Moses. In this book, the Witch of Endor ascribes full power to the Hexahemeron Cat in warding off evil spells. It was declared that the Hex Cat had beyond doubt an engagement with the Evil One, whereby it had imparted to it an imp or spirit. The Schuylkill Haven Cat has never eaten anything but toads, frogs, lizards, and serpents, and the Hex Doctors agreed that its presence will restore the Thomas Homestead to a normal condition. Thanks for listening, everybody. We already did a photo this week, so no photo of the week tonight. But I do want to mention Riverbend Comics. They have all of my books, and they're all signed. You can get them from Riverbend Comics, just like you can get them from our Etsy shop, direct from us. Etsy shop name is Lost Grave. Links in the show notes. Also at our Etsy shop is artwork by me, Strange Familiars t-shirts, photographs, our photos of the week are there, and all kinds of stuff. Go ahead and check it out. If you look up, Strange Familiars will come up, but the shop name is Lost Grave. You can type in Lost Grave, one word. And our friends at Karmic Garden are also on Etsy. If you're looking for the bespoke Strange Familiar scent, which I'm told is quite popular with the ladies. <laughs> I've been told that. <laughs> I have been told that. <laughs> or the Flannel Man scent they have. Which is quite popular with pajamas. <laughs> pajamas? Oh, flannel. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say with lumberjacks. That would make more sense. Uh, they have soaps, uh, scented sanitizers, natural cleaners, candles, all kinds of stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash karmic garden. Trusted remedies made from mother nature. I think next week's show is going to be our Christmas show because I'm super eager to get it out because I recorded almost two and a half hours with brother Richard the other night and he is a wonderful guest. It's phenomenal. Sometimes I listen to the interviews as they're happening. Sometimes I don't just because I know I'll probably hear them in the editing process. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'll just watch something on TV. And then I started to hear him talk and I thought, now I want to listen to this. Yeah. It's like going to like a class, really. I feel like it's the equivalent of taking a philosophy, spirituality, religion class. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm inspired and amazed. And boy, I just love Brother Richard. And what a fantastic guest. So that should be coming up. That'll be our Christmas show. Very long show. I think I'll just put it all out as one show. Yeah, listen to it in parts if you don't have time. To, but my guess is that once you start it, you'll want to finish all of it because there's a and A portion of it, and he effortlessly answers every question. Yeah, I mean, he really has the knowledge to back it up as yeah, he does. It's, it's wonderful. So that's coming up soon, and then uh, well, we're getting into all kinds of stuff coming up. So stay tuned to Strange Familiars. We'll be bringing you as much content as we can this month. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group, and we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.